You are listening to the Hippie Haven podcast, where we have real-life conversations about all things hippie, from veganism to zero waste to manifesting to minimalism and everything in between. I'm your host, Callie. I'm a zero-waste activist and consultant traveling the United States in a van with a mission of encouraging people to live an ethical and eco-friendly lifestyle. With this podcast, I want to show you how easy it can be to take small steps that make a big difference in saving our planet. Let's get started. This episode of the Hippie Haven podcast is brought to you by Sustain, makers of natural feminine care products. Most products we're using down there contain ingredients that harm your body rather than help it. With Sustain, they're committed to always putting your health first, which means their products are better, safer, and more vagina-friendly than traditional brands. And bonus points for being socially and environmentally conscious as well. They use fair trade latex for their condoms and organic cotton for their tampons. Plus, they give 10% of their profits to women's healthcare organizations. Save $5 off your first order by visiting www.ahippieinavan.com forward slash sustain. Thanks for supporting our partners. Today I'm chatting with Sarah Williams of Tough Girl Challenges. Sarah is a published author, podcaster, vlogger, motivational speaker, life coach, and world adventurer who, among her many amazing accomplishments, has hiked the Appalachian Trail, completed the Marathon de Sobs, and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Sarah was also recognized by The Guardian as one of the 10 most inspiring contemporary female adventurers to follow, and Red Bull named her as one of the adventurers to follow on Instagram in 2018. Currently, Sarah is cycling approximately 4,000 kilometers, or 2,500 miles, along the Pacific coast from Vancouver, Canada to Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. In this episode, Sarah shares details of her incredible journey, from how she quit her job to travel the world, to suffering and surviving a major illness, what lies ahead for her, plus how you can truly do anything you set your mind to. Be sure to check out Sarah's podcast, The Tough Girl Podcast, where she interviews other inspirational women from around the world who face difficult situations as they share their knowledge and essential tips for you to overcome your own personal challenges. So Sarah, tell me about yourself. Oh my goodness, where to start? So I have been named many different things from a blogger to a podcaster to an adventurer. Um, I would label myself as a promoter of women. I'm all about sort of increasing the amount of female role models in the media. I'm all about motivating, inspiring women and girls to get fit and active, to travel and explore, to live full lives, to be adventurous, to challenge themselves and to step outside of their comfort zone. Um, but I haven't always been like this. So in my previous life, I would say I actually worked in banking for eight years before I quit my job, traveled the world and started my own company, Tough Girl Challenges Up. And that's what I've been doing for the past five years now. I don't know where the time's gone. Wow. What spurred you to quit your job in finance? To be fair, it was, a, it was a multitude of different things which sort of gradually built up. But what I realized was that I'd followed the normal path. So I'd gone to school, done my A-levels, gone to university, graduated from university, all my friends moving down to London. And I just thought that's that's the logical next step for me. Move to London, get a graduate job, start earning money. And money was a big driver and a big motivator for me. And I did it for eight years. And you know, when you suddenly wake up one day, you just think, I just don't want to do this anymore. Like this cannot be my life the next 30 years, working in office, working 15 hour days on the 15th floor, never getting outside, never getting fresh air, living for basically two or three weeks holiday a year. And it just wasn't the life that I wanted. And I 
I, I'm, I'm a really positive person, but I think I'd been having to force myself to be positive for so long that when I basically finally woke up, I, I finally realized that I'd had enough. Everything just came to a head and I thought, actually, do you know what? I can't do this anymore. Something has got to change in my life and, and that has to be me. So it was must have been March, March 2013 now, so quite a while ago. I mean, I was very fortunate. I did have savings behind me, so I was able to to leave and know that I didn't need to be able to work for at least a year. And I, I took what, what was meant to be a year off and it turned into about 18 months where I took some time to go traveling. I visited family over in Australia. I backpacked around South America. I did a ski season for six months. And that's when I got to really think about what do I want to do? What are my interests? What are my passions? What are my hobbies? You know, what, when I'm really, really old and I look back on my life, what do I want to have achieved? And I'd never really given myself that time or the opportunity to do that. I'd just been going with the flow. So that was quite a powerful year for me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I've totally been there. I left my job in the military as an Arabic translator to move into a camper van and travel around the United States. So I've 100% have been there of just that that moment when you wake up and you're just like, I, I can't keep doing this anymore. There's more to life than this. There's got to be. And then it just comes down to figuring out what to do from there. But that's but that is actually the hard bit, though. I don't think no, you don't you don't get taught this in, in school. And, and generally what you find is people, you know, depending on who you're surrounded by, so what your parents have done, what your friends, parents are doing, what sort of world you're operating in, that, that's how you end up going down these different dif- these different routes or these different career options. And it's quite rare to actually think, hold on, what are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What am I good at doing? What what should I do? And I think society does have certain um, expectations from you or how people judge success in terms of is it is it your job? Is it the amount of money you earn? Do you have your own house? You know, are are you married? You know, those types of things are deemed very, very important. But actually taking that time out to really think about what you want, you just you just don't know until you know you come to this point in your life, which unfortunately for a lot of people now, I, I believe, sort of happens either in their thirties and it's like the midlife crisis, um, or maybe slightly younger. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's that is definitely the hardest part is figuring out what comes from there. So you said that your original plan was just to kind of travel the world for a year and it turned into 18 months after that. And and now obviously you've been doing this for, you said five years now. Um, But at the time that you decided to quit your job, did you have a backup plan? Did you, did you plan on like, okay, I'll go do this for a year, find myself and then come back to this field or start a whole different career? What was your thought process at that time? No, I didn't have any backup plan. I didn't really have any ideas. I had vague sort of, well, maybe I'll, I'll maybe I'll go back into banking in the future, or you know, maybe I'll do something completely different. I'll move to Singapore, or maybe I'll live in New York, or maybe I'll go work for a charity. I had these very vague ideas, and I didn't. I to be honest, I actually felt really lost during that period. For for the first, I'd say six to eight weeks, the first two months, it was amazing because you know I was going off to climb Kilimanjaro. I spent time in Australia. And I felt, you know, I did have this sort of purpose because I knew what I was going to be doing over the next, over the next coming uh, months. But as time went on, I sort of realized that actually I didn't know what I was doing with myself. And I had all this free time, but no purpose. And I felt incredibly 
lost and very unsure of myself. And I think it was also a bit of a transition mentally because I got a lot of my status in, you know, who I was as a person. You know, when people say to you, they ask you that awful question, um, you know, what do you do? I never thought it was an awful question because I was like, oh, well, I work for X bank doing, you know, wealth management. And everyone's like, oh my God, that must be amazing. And that's so glamorous and so exciting. And I got a lot of status from that. And I got a lot of recognition from that. And it did wonders for, um, for my ego. But it was actually when I was in South America, I was riding on these buses, you know, you get 24 hours at a time riding on these buses, these really long distances. And that's when I really started to think and I was journaling a lot, I was writing lots of things down, sort of processing. And it was then that I started to think, actually, my interests are I do love travel, I do love adventure. I love doing those crazy types of challenges where everyone's like, you did what? And oh, my goodness, wow, that's that's so crazy. Um, But the other part of or the other side of the coin was that I was very passionate about motivating, inspiring women and girls. So when I was working in London, I was also part of UN Women, the London Committee. I was helping out for Women for Women International. Um, I was like one of their one of their sisters and sponsoring another lady. And I decided to combine them both into into a blog at first, which was which was Tough Girl Challenges. But again, I didn't really know what I wanted to achieve with it I think I had this sort of maybe this pipe dream that maybe I'll be able to make it work in the future and that'll be able to be a digital nomad and I'll be able to travel with it and you know people will be so interested in my life that they'll they'll you know thousands of people will read my blog and obviously none of that happened nobody read my blog um and it was like whoa this is actually a lot harder than I thought it was going to be but I'd say it's probably maybe six yeah six months later actually sort of launching Tough Girl Challenges I suddenly realized what my purpose was and it was and it was because I was going into these local girls schools and I was giving motivational talks and I was talking about challenging themselves and stepping outside your comfort zone and I remember talking to some of the girls about their goals for the future and they just didn't have any ambition they didn't have any drive any goals and you know many of them once said to me oh I want to be a wag which in England is they wanted to be like a wife and the girlfriend of a footballer and you know in your heart just sinks and you just think this cannot be our next generation of young women and girls growing up this cannot be their their goal in life just to grow up to be pretty you know you're worth so much more than just what you look like on the outside I remember coming home and I was flipping through the newspapers just a bit despondent really and as I was looking through the newspapers, I was suddenly like, hold on, where are all the women? There's, there's, just, there's just no women. There's no women in the sports sections. There's no women on the front. All of the writers are men. It must, you know, must have just been you know, one of those days. And I suddenly started to realize that actually we are doing a massive disservice to young women growing up because they can't see female role models. They're just, they're just not out there unless you dig and you dig and you dig. And I like to think, you know, I'm quite educated, I'm quite exposed, I know what's going on. But even, you know, my whole world has opened up since I started doing what I'm doing, because I'm sharing these incredible stories of adventurers and female role models who are out there just absolutely smashing it across all spectrums, from climbing the highest mountain in the world to swimming, swimming oceans and lakes and across the channel and doing these incredible bike rides and doing triathlons and multiple triathlons. Um, and it's just it's inspiring to to be able to promote their stories and I think once I found that then suddenly I did have this this purpose which I can really focus down tough girl challenges and what my goal is now in life which is to motivate and inspire women and girls but also to increase the amount of female role models in the media and I think having that purpose and that goal has just given me so much more structure and now I know what I'm working towards every day I know 
um, how to add value. I know what I'm doing is going to make a difference. And what has been your proudest accomplishment with Tough Girl Challenges? Oh my goodness! Probably well, most recently with uh, with Tough Girl Challenges. So you have you have the blog and you have the podcast. I was actually up for a national award, and it was the Women's Sports Trust Be a Game Changer Awards, and I was up against some pretty big global companies, basically like Sky Sports, the BBC, um, Channel Four, Manchester City, um, just you know huge huge companies, massive marketing budgets. And I was in, I was a finalist of six. I got shortlisted. Um, no, sorry, final, no, there was eight in the final. I got shortlisted to the, to the final four and it came down to a public vote. And I was thinking, I haven't, I haven't got a hope. I mean, I've got a pretty big reach, but you know, I have a zero marketing budget. Sky Sports, they send a tweet out to, you know, 5 million people. Manchester City send a tweet out to their 100,000 followers on Twitter. And I've got you know, 8,000 followers. And you just think, I haven't, how can I win? How can I win this with a public vote? And, um, and on the night, it was this incredible night down in London. Very, very excited. I knew lots of people down there. One of my good friends, Stacey Copeland, she was up for uh, Individual Role Model of the Year Award. My sister was there with her husband. And it was just, it was really exciting to be there. And um, I just didn't think it was going to be possible. And I remember um, when they announced, uh, you know, the Tough Girl podcast has won. And I just, I just burst into tears because I've, I've been doing this now for you know, for four years, um, the po- the podcast since 2005, for two and a half of those years, I'd been going into debt, putting out my content, it taken me six months to get 25,000 downloads, it taken me a year to get 100,000 downloads, three years to get half a million. And it's not I don't do this for the appreciation. But when you get recognized on a scale like that, and you win a national award, and people see what you're doing and they appreciate the value that you're giving that for me was just an incredibly proud moment because I just I've been working on this so so hard as you know like a solo entrepreneur and I do as as I imagine you do you know I do everything I design my website I do all my social media um, I do all the show notes I do all the editing and it's a huge amount of work that goes on behind the scenes and I don't think people necessarily realize that but I think what I really I think what I'm most proud of is that one person can make a difference if you're really passionate about something. And and so that was an incredible moment for me. That sounds absolutely wonderful. Congratulations on that. Oh, thank you very much. You can actually, I think there is a video somewhere of me, of me receiving my awards. I was just like, you know, tears pouring down my face. I was like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Trying to control my emotions. But you know, great, great fun, great evening. That sounds like it. So you mentioned Mount Kilimanjaro. I just learned about Kilimanjaro a few months ago, which is crazy. I know. Um, But for any of my listeners who are in the same boat that I was, can you briefly explain what Kilimanjaro is and why it's a big deal? Yes, absolutely. So there's something called the Seven Summits. And the Seven Summits are the highest mountain on every single continent. So people have probably heard of, of Mount Everest. I'm going to forget all the different names now, uh, Mount Elbrus. And then you've also got Kilimanjaro. And Kilimanjaro is the highest mountain in Africa. And what's interesting about Kilimanjaro is that it's a freestanding mountain. So you don't actually need any technical skills to go and climb this mountain. So I think the youngest person is maybe eight years old and the oldest person is like sort of in his, in, in his 80s. And it's what's known as almost like a leveler because anybody can go and climb this mountain. Um, So, yeah, it's it's an incredible opportunity. It's a very popular thing to go and do. There's about 
eight or nine different walking routes that you can go up. Um, it's, you know, in comparison to the other mountains in the world, it's, you know, it's relatively safe to do, even though you are going at altitude and you're going over 5,000 meters. But incredible challenge, a great thing to do. Um, it tests you both physically and both mentally. And that's what I ended up doing in, um, in 2013 with my sister, actually. She, she was turning 30 and she decided to write down a list of 30 things to do before she turned 30. And climbing Kilimanjaro was on there. And so she said to me at Christmas, oh, do you fancy climbing this mountain? And I was like, absolutely, of course, you know, let's go for it. And we ended up climbing it um, in May, in May, yeah, May, going from March, April, May, yeah, May 2013. And it was an amazing experience. I mean, it was, it was brutally tough. I remember summit night, it was being pitch, pitch black outside. We were woken up at half 11 at night. Uh, headed outside we're in single file we had our head torches on we saw this very small one meter ahead of us light illuminating the ground in front of us and we started our walk up we had our porters you know shouting to us on a regular basis poly 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 which means um slowly slowly because it's all about acclimatizing acclimatizing your body and getting used to sort of the, the lack of oxygen in the air so you're meant to walk very very slowly and I remember it got to maybe like quarter to seven in the morning seven o'clock in the morning we reached this place called Gilman's Point and when when we got there you're about 300 meters away from the summit and you turn around for the first time you've got the sun the sun rising up you can see like the curvature of the earth you're above the cloud layer and it's just absolutely phenomenal. And then you've got, you know, a further 300 meters to go, which unfortunately would still take you about an hour and a half to get there and back. And then, you know, you're at the summit and you're standing on the highest point in Africa, which is absolutely amazing. Have you done it? Is it on your list of things to do? Oh, goodness. Um, no, I've never done it. Um, but maybe, I don't know. I've never really, I've never done any mountain climbing. So I definitely have to start a lot smaller than that before trying to scale Kilimanjaro. Was that the first major mountain that you climbed? Yes. I mean, I've, I've climbed in, so I live very close in, in England where I live. I live very close to Snowdonia and Snowdon is the highest mountain in Wales. But in terms of height, it's, you know, it doesn't really, it doesn't really compare. I, I wish I could remember how high it is. It's maybe like just under a thousand meters, but don't quote me on that. I could be vastly wrong. So I, you know, I climbed mountains like that, but I hadn't done any other mountaineering. And that's what I mean about you don't have to have, you have to have a high level of fitness to be able to do it, but you don't need any specialist skills. So um, anybody can go and do it. I think it's just all about, you know, being strong, being fit, having a good level of endurance, being making sure that you're hydrated, you're eating a lot while you're while you're on the climb and, and you make sure that you listen to your guides as well. I have actually written um, a book about my experience because um, when I was on my, you know, my gap year, I thought, if I do want to go back into paid employment at the end of this, and I go for an interview for, you know, for a job, and they say to me, oh, Sarah, tell me what you've been doing on this year out. And I'm saying, oh, well, I've traveled here, and I've had fun in Ibiza, and I've traveled throughout Europe, and I've been to Miami. It's not really, it doesn't, I don't think it really shows me in the best light. But I thought, well, actually, why don't I write and publish a book, self-publish a book on Kilimanjaro? Then at least, you know, that, that's sort of another string to my bow. And I can say, well, actually, you know, I'm, I'm a published author. I've, you know, I've published my book on Amazon. You know, it tells you more about my story and, you know, what it was like. Um, so, so, so you can actually, you can read all about it on uh, Tips for the Top, Kilimanjaro. That is so cool. How long did it take to climb Kilimanjaro? I think it was about seven days in total. So it was quite sort of a gradual um, 
a gradual hike going up. So the, the days weren't particularly tough. I'd say the, 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 the days before summit night were, you know, very, very pleasant. You're very well looked after, you know, good breakfast. You walk for a couple of hours, you arrive, they've set up a tent for lunch. You sit down to a really good meal. You walk for, you know, for another couple of hours. Um, your tents are then set up for, for the evening, you have another great meal. And for the first sort of five or six days, it's, you know, it's not, it's not that strenuous. Well, I, I personally didn't find it that strenuous. It's just summit night, which is the absolute um, shocker to the system because it's because you've walked all day. You So you arrive at your camp, base camp, at maybe sort of five o'clock in the evening. You get about four or five hours sleep or try to sleep before you're woken up again that evening at half 11 to start walking at midnight. And the reason that you're doing that is obviously you've got to get to get to the summit, turn around and get back down, get back down again um, in plenty of time. So that's the, the, that's the really tough point that those sort of 15 hours, I'd say when you, you don't, you don't have much sleep, you've got to keep walking, you're walking in the dark, you, my, I didn't have any music on, I didn't have anything to distract me. And so that's when your your thoughts can start taking over your head. And it's very easy to slip into negative thought patterns. I mean, for me, it was, oh, I'm so tired, and my feet hurt. And Sarah, why are you doing this again? This is a stupid idea. You're never going to make it. Um, you know, who made, why did you think you could do this? You know, you, you just, you're not fit enough, just turn around, just stop. Why do, why do you need to keep on going? I think that for me was a really powerful point because I realized that if I continued having these negative thoughts, that actually I'm never going to get to the top. I'm never going to reach the summit um, with that attitude. And actually nobody else could change my attitude, you know, when I'm walking up the mountain. That actually, that the responsibility was on me and I had to take full ownership of what was going on in my head. And I remember just switching it and suddenly it was, you know, it was becoming my own cheerleader. It was saying, you know, come on, Sarah you've trained for this, you're fit, just get to the next role, you're strong. And sometimes it was just repeating that over and over and over again. I'm strong, I'm fit, I'm strong, I'm fit, I'm going to reach the summit, I'm going to reach the summit, I'm going to reach the summit. And, and making that change really sort of connected things for me in terms of mental attitude, in terms of mindset, in terms of mental resilience. And I think that was that was very, very powerful, um, or a very powerful lesson to learn. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes is whether you believe you can or you can't, you're right. hundred percent. And yes. And I the moment I heard that, it just clicked with me. I was like, oh my goodness, that's that's so true. If you believe that you can, then you totally can. And if you're sitting there telling yourself, Oh, I can't, I can't, I can't, then it's never gonna happen for you. It's very much all in your head. Oh, 100%. And I think that's what I've realized with all the different physical challenges that I've done. You do have to have that element of physicality. You've got to be fit. You've got to be strong. You've got to be you know, healthy. But actually, 70, 80% of it comes down to your mind. And it is this mind over, over matter. And it's having this the uh, a way to be kind to yourself, but also to be tough with yourself, but to also mentally know that you can do it. Absolutely. And with the exception, of course, of any physical limitations or disabilities, I think just becoming fit is also mainly your mindset too. If if you're telling yourself, oh, I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to work out. I don't want to train. I can't do this. I can't. Then you're never going to get to that physical strength to be able to do insane milestones like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and I'm, I hope I get this right. Tell me about Marathon de Sobs. Is that correct? Correct. Absolutely nailed it. Yes. 
so when um, when I was launching Tough Girl Challenges, I thought, well, if I'm out there talking to people how they should, you know, they should challenge themselves physically, they should get fit, they should get active, they should step outside their comfort zone. I can't just go out there talking about it. I've actually got to, you know, walk the walk as such. And I'd run, I'd run marathons previously, so I knew that I could run a marathon distance. That was in my comfort zone. But I'd never gone further. And I wanted a big challenge, which was going to scare me. So I could get those feelings of apprehension, those butterflies in my stomach, so that I could understand what other people are going through when, when they think that they can't do something. So then I could figure out how I could get past that to help other people get past it as well. I'd heard about the Marathon de Sables, and Marathon de Sables is French for Marathon of the Sands, and it is what well, it's been labeled as the world's toughest foot race by the Discovery Channel. It's held in Morocco every single year. There's about 1,200 competitors from all over the world. It's a very difficult race to get into, and it's a multi stage ultra endurance running event. And you're carrying everything you need on your back, you're running a marathon every single day for six days. And one of those days, you actually run a double marathon, so you run 52 miles in a day. And um, you're running through the Sahara Desert. So as you can imagine, the temperatures are incredibly high, you know, well over 40 odd degrees. Um, there's lots of different elements to, to take on board. There's your hydration, there's your food because you're carrying everything, you're sleeping in tents, um, which are not really tents as how you and I would think of it. They're more sort of like black pieces of tarp hung over this sort of dirty piece of carpet in the middle of the desert. But it is, um, it's a big physical challenge a big physical undertaking and um and I wanted to do this race in 2015 actually and uh to, to launch tough girl challenges and I ended up throwing everything at my training I was I was a machine I I felt like I was a machine I was doing weightlifting and running and walking and my rest days I was doing yoga I was doing swimming and I felt super super fit but then, you know, little things started to happen. I was, you know, I started to get muscle cramps. I wasn't sleeping that well. So I thought, oh, it must be magnesium deficiency or I must need compression gear. Then it started that I couldn't wake up in the mornings. I didn't have any energy. And I thought, well, maybe I'm suffering from that SAD disorder because, you know, it's dark and it's, it's coming up to, to winter time. So maybe I'll get a special lamp. Um, I started to lose a lot of weight. And so I thought, well, you know, I just need to eat more. I just need to eat more. And I was constantly craving food, constantly eating, going downstairs at midnight to eat food, waking up at three or four in the morning to go and eat food, um, still losing weight. Then, you know, my, my period stopped. My, I started to get acne on my face and I didn't really get spots. I got acne on my shoulders. My hair started to break off. And I started to to really struggle with like my energy levels, as in, I meant to be this high energy, motivated person who's going to the gym all the time. And I couldn't get out of bed. And I remember actually forcing myself, I was like, come on, Sarah, you know, motion creates emotion. If you're not feeling good, you've, you've got to change your state, you've got to go do some exercise, go walk outside, go for a run. And obviously, I'm training for this big event. And I remember going outside, and I was running along the coast, because I live by the beach, and I hadn't even made it sort of half a mile. And it was like my whole body was shutting down. I think the really interesting thing here was, you know, previously we were talking about mind over matter. In my head, I was shouting. I was like, come on, Sarah, keep running. You can do this. You're an athlete. You're strong. You know, how can, I was, how can you only make it half a mile? You, you know, you're going to be running 150 odd miles in the desert in a couple of months. You can do this. And my body just couldn't. I remember basically coming to this bench and sitting down, sobbing and crying because I just, I couldn't do it. And I walked home, I climbed into bed and I just didn't know 
what was wrong with me and I was basically over Christmas I I was bed bound I couldn't move uh, the lights were hurting my eyes if I made it to brush my teeth that was a total win and so um, you actually need to get a sign off from your doctor to do the marathon de Sables, and you need to have like an ECG done on your heart as well before you do it and I ended up going to see my because I I don't know why. In my head, I still thought I'd be doing this race in 2015. And I remember speaking to the doctor in January, and he was just like, you cannot do this race. You know, you can hardly get out of bed. You can hardly walk. You're, you know, you've got all of these issues. This is not going to happen. So I ended up having to postpone um, my race for 2016. And 2015 was basically the whole year was wiped out for me because I was, I was suffering with chronic fatigue. I was suffering with anemia. I needed to change my diet. I started working with a naturopath. I lost all my fitness. My health had just completely gone. And it took me a year to get my health back, to get my fitness back. So I actually ended up doing the race in, um, in April 2016. So it was almost sort of 18 months of training and preparation with huge high points and also huge low points. And so for me, the real challenge wasn't actually sort of completing the race it was getting to the start line being strong and fit and healthy and that for me was um yeah was 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 an amazing moment to actually reach that start line get after getting my health back and being in a strong fit healthy position was there ever a time during all of that that you just felt like quitting and giving up like why you know 18 months were you ever like oh you know what forget it I'm just I'm not gonna worry about the marathon no, I, uh, it was, it was there in the back of my mind. I, I never didn't want to do it, but I had serious low points in terms of just, you know, my life, what am I doing? What, you know, why do I want to do this? It's never that I didn't want to do it. It was almost, it was that, can I do it? Am I going to be fit enough? You know, what happens if I get out there and I push myself physically again, I'm training and I'm pushing myself hard and my body lets me down. And then also what happens as well, you start having that, you know, this mind body connection, where you start thinking, Oh, I can't, I can't really push myself because, you know, I push myself too hard, I'm going to end up back being, you know, bed bound. And that's when it starts to become really, really challenging. But I always knew that I wanted to do this race. It was just a very difficult process to get to the point where I could physically do it. And then after that, you hiked the Appalachian Trail, solo and unsupported. Tell me more about that experience. Oh, I did. So so as we mentioned, you know, I, I trained for like 18 months for Marathon de Sardes, and then suddenly, six days later, it was all over. And it was like, oh, okay, you know, I spent almost two years of my life, <laughs> and it was done. So I thought, well, the next challenge I do... I want to do a longer challenge and I'd heard about the Appalachian Trail which runs you know it's 2,190 miles it's um it's in the sort of west west coast area of America it starts in Springer Mountain Georgia runs through 14 states all the way up to Mount Katahdin in Maine it's one of the longest hiking only footpaths in the world and it's just this incredible hiking footpath and I'd heard about it and you know you hear about something you think that would just be amazing, being out in nature, walking through 14 states, walking 2,200 miles. And uh, most people do it in five and a half months. And because of what I do um, you know, with the blog and with the podcast, I just thought there's no way I can take that much time out. And I heard about this guy who, um, who the previous year had done it in 100 days. And you know when something just sort of fits in your, slips in your mind and a seed gets planted? 
And it was suddenly like 100 days. Okay, well, if he can do it, and you know, he didn't look particularly fit to me, I thought, well, why can't I do it? That would be amazing. And 100 days, I can, I can preload podcasts and blog posts for while I'm away. So my business can still continue running. And, um, and before I knew it, I had my start date, and I had my finish date. And I was out on the Appalachian Trail walking on average about 25 miles per day. Didn't start off, uh, off at that much, you know, starting off sort of 15, but gradually building up. And um, yeah, I, I think I was very naive, I would have to say, because it's such a huge distance. I don't think I really thought about it. I just, I didn't really even realize, you know, the elevation gain and loss is the equivalent of walking up and down Mount Everest 16 times. It's just it's just ridiculous. Um, incredible challenge. It was, you know, it was brutal. I actually vlogged it every single day because I wanted to share the journey with other people. You can see, well, people can see my weight loss I ended up dropping about two stone in weight. I, I put on a stone in weight before I started because I knew that was something I was going to have to contend with. Um, but you know, my hip bones were being rubbed red raw. Uh, mentally, I I just didn't know if I was going to be able to complete it because I was constantly behind. I was constantly chasing. And it was dealing with those thoughts of failure that, you know, I'm never going to make this because it is it was such a colossal distance to, to walk. Um, but, yeah, an, an amazing experience. And I'm so glad I vlogged it because I, I watch back on the vlogs now and I'm just like, oh, my goodness, how, how did I get through this? That is crazy. And one stone is about 14 pounds for, for my American yes. listeners. Yeah. I just Googled that super quick because I was like, I have no idea what a stone is. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So about 28 pounds in just over three months. That's crazy. So with all of these different experiences, you were solo for most, if not all of it, correct? Yeah. I mean, with Marathon de Saabs, there are other people there who you obviously get to meet and you're sharing a tent with seven other people. And when you're on the Appalachian Trail, you do get to meet other hikers as well. Um, but I was, I was, yeah, solo and unsupported. So I was doing everything myself. Now, with being a solo female, as you've traveled all over the world and done all of these things, and I'm sure you've gotten this question a million times, have there ever been points where you were scared uh, being by yourself? Uh, great question. And the answer would be yes. But I think it is all about how you frame it. not how you frame it, but how you approach situations. So I think I apply a lot of common sense. Um, I'm also very, very aware of my surroundings, what I'm doing. Um, so, for example, when I'm on, the, I, I love the color pink. And if you look at Tough Girl Challenges, you know, there's pink everywhere. Even in my bedroom where I'm sat, you know, I've got a pink phone cover. My cushions on my bed are pink. But when I'm out walking, I will not be wearing a pink hiking jacket. Um when uh, there's a, also a certain backpack that most women use, it's the green Osprey backpack. When I'm out hiking, um, I will not leave my backpack outside my tent because if somebody's walking along and they see it, you know, they see your backpack, then they think, oh, that's a single female in there. Or they see you from a distance wearing bright pink, they can see that you're you're a single female. So I think it's little things like that. Also, when I come to road crossing, I'm very aware who who else is at the road crossing um what's on the road right is this a safe place to cross absolutely I also listen to my gut 100% and if I don't feel comfortable and somebody's either walking with me and I don't like it I will either slow down to walk with other people or I will speed up and get as far away as possible I mean I did have one situation which I didn't like when I was on the Appalachian Trail and um there was a group of us we were sat down 
at um, at one of the shelters and this older man basically started talking about rapes and murder on the Appalachian Trail and I and I was just sat there and thinking I'm not I don't want to listen to this conversation I don't understand the purpose purpose of it and why you're trying to bring this up um, I don't know what you're trying to gain from it and I don't know if this comes with age or with confidence but I, I am more than I will shut that stuff down and I'm more than happy just to say like no we are not having this conversation let's change the topic and you know move on and I think that does you've got to how you do that does depend on the situation and where you are because sometimes you know being more aggressive is the right thing to do sometimes not being aggressive is the right thing to do it does depend a lot on the situation and even you know when you are out traveling I mean when I was in South America and traveling solo I come across loads of people like oh my god I just had my I've had all my gear stolen and I'd be like well where was your gear he said oh well it was on the bus but I put it you know up in the shelves above and for me when I'm traveling obviously have my backpack but I have then I also have like the smaller pack which has my passport my money you know my laptop my you know my camera all my important stuff and that is strapped to my chest and when I'm sleeping say like on um, you know on these 24-hour buses and coaches it's on me underneath like my hoodie my arms are wrapped around it I don't let it out of my sight or out of my person and I think things like that people do need to pay attention to you you also have to be aware you know when it is dark and you don't know the area you've got to ask you know the local um if, if you're staying in a youth hostel or you know where you're staying like where's good to go where's not good to go what do I need to be aware of and also just listening or speaking with other travelers you know just to see what's there what their issues are so you know for example on my next challenge that I'm doing I'm cycling from Vancouver all the way down to uh, Cabo in Mexico and the bit for me which I've got the most concern over is the border crossing crossing over from the USA into Mexico and so I've got to really think about that in advance and I've got to think how I'm going to do it in a safe fashion and to make sure that I can get across the border get to the border in good time cross the border quickly and efficiently know what I'm doing and then get out of the border town to somewhere where I feel safe and secure and so I think you can plan for a lot of things in advance and think through different situations and that can be incredibly useful um but also I would never want to stop any woman traveling um but I think there's obviously you've got to apply common sense to the situation but I do also believe that 99% of people out there are kind and good and helpful and and when I was on the Appalachian Trail, the kindness of strangers was just amazing. From people giving me food, people giving me lifts, to um, to people, you know, to supporting me. And I think, I, I, honestly, I do believe that the world is good. Like, try not to read the newspapers and watch the TV. It's not, it's not that bad. Oh, I 100% agree. I do think that most people are so kind and they go out of their way to help you. And with the newspapers, you're seeing that, like, one to five percent of the population that's bad and it's all packed into this you know this giant platform and and so if that's all you're getting out of it is like you're seeing these tiny group of people doing these awful things then your view is going to get very skewed absolutely absolutely so with all of the amazing experiences that you've been through what is the one moment that stands out the most oh that's such a good question um I, I suppose the one moment that really stands out, even to this day, was on the Marathon de Saabs, um, we, we did this long stage, so running 52 miles in a day, and I couldn't even comprehend that distance. It's a huge, huge distance. I, I'm trying, I'll try and put it, I think it's about like 80 or 90 kilometers maybe, and um, 
And I set off at 8.30 in the morning. And I knew, obviously, that I could reach a marathon distance, but I didn't know what was going to happen to me physically and mentally after I got past 26.2 miles. And I reached 30, then 35 miles, and then 40. And I got this, like, I remember this point. The sun was starting to go down in the desert, and it was starting to cool off. And I reached the top of this um, this jebel, which is a similar thing of, of a sand dune. And I was looking down. All I could see ahead of me for about a thousand meters was these just these undulating sand dunes. The sun was starting to go down. The stars were starting to come up. It was starting to go to nighttime, and it was one of the most beautiful sights I've ever seen. And I remember tightening up my my straps. So I pulled my right strap tighter. I pulled my left strap tighter. I took a sip of water. I had some salt tablets. And in my head, I was saying to myself, "This is what I've been training for. This is why I've been running all of those miles every single week. This is what I've trained for." And I remember just running down and having the most incredible, probably four or five miles. And in my head, I thought, oh, this is, you know, this is going to continue now until I reach the very end. It didn't. I hit a wall, you know, about two miles later, where I went from this incredible high to this incredible low in this dark place where it was, you know, it was like I was crawling up a sand dune. I was, I couldn't see the next light. I was getting lost in the dark. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to end up, you know, being stranded in the middle of the desert. But I ended up finishing that race. At a, or that stage of the race at about 10 to 2 in the morning and I crossed over the finish line I blew a kiss at the webcam and um and I remember seeing some there were some volunteers there and I just had this massive high and I was like you know like yes I've done it I've completed it and you know what I could run another 52 miles and that was what was most powerful to me because I felt so strong and so invincible and so confident in myself I had so much self-belief because all of the hard work had paid off. And that's the moment that really does stand out for me. And even when I was on the Appalachian Trail, and I was having these really tough days, and I, I may have only have walked like 24 miles, and I'd say to myself, Sarah, back on Marathon de Sables, you did a 52 miles in a day. You've only walked 24 miles a day. You can keep on going. You can do another four miles. You can do another eight miles. And I think that's what, that's, you know, being able to relive that experience I've been able to use that as a confidence booster in other challenges that I've done because I think, well, if I can do that, I can do this. What is your number one piece of advice for women who have big dreams but feel held back in some way? Oh, that's really interesting. I think ugh, there's a there's a lot that can go into that. There's um I do you know what what I would say is I I think a lot of this comes down for women especially is fear. And it's in terms of fear, basically, of what other people are going to think of me and whether that's friends or family or the people closest to you. Unfortunately, those are the people who should be supportive and who should be encouraging you to go after your dreams. Sometimes that isn't the case. And sometimes, you know, it will be responses of, you know, why would you want to do that? Oh, you couldn't do that. Or, you know, are you out of your mind? What makes you think that you could go and run that ultra or go run that marathon or go for that job or go and do that university degree or whatever it is may, that, that, that it may be? And I think women do internalize these fears. And for me personally, I know that I want to be light. And it can take a while for you to basically, for you to love yourself and for you to like yourself and to be able to go on and do these challenges. So I think fear holds a lot of women back. I think, you know, to give you really practical advice is when people have these big challenges, they want to do whatever it may be. The first thing that can happen is this fear of overwhelm. As in, you suddenly start thinking about the Appalachian Trail, for example, or Marathon de Saabs or climbing Kilimanjaro. And instead of thinking of all the reasons why you could do it, part of your brain will start going through every single reason why you can't do it. 
And actually what you need to do is almost forget that and start breaking the challenge down. And sometimes that first step could just be Googling it. It could be doing your research, reading a book about it, listening to a podcast about it, um, getting a piece of paper and writing down, why do I want to do this challenge? What are the benefits going to be for me? Um, another practical piece of advice is if you if you are struggling with the mental side of things and there's lots of, you know, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? You can work through that before you even get there. You get a piece of paper, you draw a line down the center on the left-hand side, you write down every single what if, every single fear that you have. What if my, what if I run out of food? What if I get attacked by bears? What if I get lost? What if I run out of water? Um, what if I fall over and twist my ankle? What if I break my leg? Or, you know, anything you can think of. And then when you're at home in your nice, comfortable, safe environment, you can logically start working through all of these mental blocks that you've put up. Well, uh, you know, what if I run out of water? Okay, well, I'll figure out where the next water source is. And I know that I can survive three days without water. So the likelihood is that actually I'll be able to reach a water source in an hour. I can ask other hikers if I see them, if I can have some of their water. You know, you can start coming up with these ideas and suggestions. And obviously, you're not going to be able to cover every single eventuality. But then when you are out there and say that does happen, you'll be like, Oh yeah, we oh yeah we covered this. So actually, if I if I do see a bear, I know I need to you know make lots of noise. I know I need to keep calm. I know I need to walk backwards. I know I need to give it its space. And actually, because you've thought this through already, it's not like a shock to the system. It's not like suddenly you're out there and there's suddenly a bear in front of you and you're like, how do I handle this? Um, your brain's already processed a lot of it and it will be able to remember it and be like, oh yeah, this is what I do when I face a bear. This is what I do when I run out of food. This is what I do when I injure myself. And I think by doing that, that will, that will help you. So <laughs> I like that. There's, there's quite a lot in there, I think. So, I mean, to, to almost summarize, it's, it is about figuring out what those fears are, be practical about it, write it down, but then also break down your challenge into really, really manageable steps. And so that it is not overwhelming and keep breaking the steps down until it's not, you know, you don't feel overwhelmed and then just do something every single day to bring you closer and closer to your goal. I love it. That is so useful. Did you ever run into a bear? Oh my God, multiple times. And uh, really? I, yeah. Well, the first time I saw a bear, it was too bad. It was amazing. I was walking along, having this wonderful, wonderful time in the woods, and they call it the Green Tunnel because it's this it's incredible green shrubbery everywhere. These beautiful, tall, magnificent trees, and a baby bear about twenty meters in front of me ran out, and I was like. And I was so excited and my voice went very high pitched then. And then very quickly, when you see a baby bear, your second thought is, is like, oh my God, it's so cute. But after that, it's like, oh no, where's mama bear? Because that's the yep. one you don't want to get in between of. And um, I had one morning on the Appalachian Trail. I wanted a really early start. I was up at six. I was walking along and I saw two baby cubs climbing trees right next to the trail with mama bear right in front. And I'm just staring at mama bear. Mama bear's standing up, ears is a pointy facing upwards and I was like right I need to back away here you know this is this this is their environment I'm intruding on them I've got no rights here so you know hitting my poles together walking backwards then looking again moving forward she's still there walking backwards you know and eventually they sort of moved away from the from the trail because you know the trail was the only bit I could actually walk and I couldn't get around any other way I remember sort of like walking very quickly almost at a run sort of getting getting past them so um yeah it, it does happen it, it does happen but um to be fair I was more excited than than scared if that makes sense yeah yeah I could see that I mean I imagine it would just be so incredible to be up close but yeah totally my second thought also would be like 
Oh, they're so cute. Oh, shoot. Where is Mama Bear? <laughs> yeah, and get away quickly. Yeah, definitely. Um, so where can people learn more about you? Best place to go is toughgirlchallenges.com. And on there, you can find more information about me, the different challenges I've done. Um, I've written three books. So you can uh, find information about Marathon de Sable, climbing Kilimanjaro, um, do, you know, having doing a ski season. You can also find uh, details of all of the women that I've interviewed for the Tough Girl podcast. So there's over 170 interviews, 170 stories of women doing incredible physical challenges. And it's all ages from teenage girls to grandmothers. It's from uh, from women who've got children, who've had children, who are having children and, and still exercising. Um, it's women, it's ordinary women, and it's also sort of Olympic athletes. So there's a massive spectrum, and a massive range of different challenges and different accomplishments. And we talk a lot about sort of you know, the fears behind it, what they've learned along the way, how they did it, how they took those steps. So, a lot, you know, very practical advice, but some incredible stories as well. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. It was so wonderful hearing about all of your amazing adventures and getting expired, inspired to get out there and do some of that for myself. Thank you so much. Oh, no, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. You can read the show notes for this episode, including a full transcript and links to the resources mentioned by visiting a hippieinavan.com forward slash zero zero nine. Hey guys, Callie here. Thank you so much for listening to the Hippie Haven podcast. Your support means the world to me. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It only takes 60 seconds, but it really helps because reviews influence how easily people can find this podcast in search results. We also have an exclusive community over on Facebook. So if you want to connect with me and other like-minded people, just type Hippie Haven in the Facebook search bar and join our group. Thanks again and stay tuned every Wednesday for the next episode.